Okay. I think we're good. Robert, you're in the place to be. You're on the podcast. Welcome. How you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. I'm watching the sunset here in Malibu, California. I know, man. I, I'm I'm so envious of that right now, just because I'm over here in about 30 degree weather right now, and it's uh, been a cold week for us. But anyway, but that's not why we're here to we're not here to talk about the weather. So, but you got a book out, Ruse Lying: The American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. You've been a number one corporate spy. I guess we should start. How does this all came to be? What was the motivation behind the book? And all that good stuff. Give a audience a little bit of a background of what's been going on. Yeah, so um, my book, Ruse, uh, released a couple of months ago, and it's the true story of how uh, a wannabe actor stumbled into a career uh, in corporate espionage and eventually became uh, basically the world's greatest corporate spy. Um, I live in Malibu because I made millions of dollars doing this job, and now I'm far enough out of the job uh, and any statue of limitations uh, – uh, statute of limitations has now passed yep. so that I can safely tell the story, write the book uh, without theoretically going to jail. Nice. Having a little camera issue here, of course, starting out here. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's okay. Real professional. There we go. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. So, cool. So, you in the beginning, you wanted to be an actor. That was your game plan? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, my hometown is Philadelphia. My family, the Kerbeck family is really well known in the automobile business. If you want a deal on a Corvette uh, or a Maserati, look them up, tell them I sent you. Um, but when I graduated college, um, I was supposed to go work in the family business. My great grandfather had started it. He sold horse carriages before cars were invented. Then my grandfather took it over. Then my father took it over. Then I was supposed to take it over. And when I graduated college, I really wanted to move to New York, try to be an actor. But I didn't know anybody that had done that. It, it just it just seemed crazy. Mm. So I went to work for my father. And uh, the kind of trickery and dishonesty of car sales just didn't feel right to me. So I, I quit and I finally got the courage and I moved to New York. And of course, actors need survival jobs. And who stumbles into a job as a corporate spy? Uh, but that's exactly what I did. Uh, a buddy, I only knew one person in New York and I was hanging out with him and he mentioned this very kind of mysterious sounding job. As soon as he talked about it, he shut up right away. Like he said something he wasn't allowed to say. And I said, hey, dude, you know, I'm broke. Help me out. What is what is this crazy mystery job? Sure. And, and uh, he wouldn't tell me anything about the job, but he did get me an interview the next day or a couple of days later, I go up to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is kind of the, the wealthiest area of Manhattan, old money. And um, I go to this doorman building. I was living in Hell's Kitchen in a cave with two other guys. I go to this doorman building. I take the elevator to the penthouse. This woman opens the door. I seem to remember that she had a cigarette and a martini. Wow. And she brings me into the nicest apartment I'd ever been in. Uh, looked like it was out of a magazine. So I knew whatever the woman was doing, it was lucrative. And um, she has this very strange interview with me. She never asks me anything about my skills. She certainly never tells me anything about the job, sends me on my way. I didn't think I got the job, but my buddy calls up and he says, you got the job, but don't get too excited because no one is able to do this job. Ooh. And the next day I went out to Brooklyn um, in a very dangerous neighborhood. Uh, this is the era of the crack epidemic, not the era of, of, of the Brooklyn of today with hipsters and beards and coffee shops. <laughs> uh, it was very rough Brooklyn and, um, go into this building, fourth floor, walk up, knock on this door. This woman opens it very attractive woman with a slight Irish accent. She says, come on in, you'll work in my bedroom. And I said, what is this job? <laughs> you know, and at the time I was single, so I wasn't too, too put out by it. Um, but she takes me into her bedroom. There's a futon and a desk. Uh, and she has me sit down at the desk. And she begins to tell me that what we do is we call major corporations and we use our acting skills. We use accents. We use voices. We use personas to get people to tell us things that they should never, ever in a million years tell us. Oh. And that was the beginning of my apprenticeship as a corporate spy. Wow. Okay. So just so we're clear, though, being a corporate spy, you're spying on, like you said, big industries and just seeing what they're actually doing behind the scenes and not at, oh, correct. And not a, like a, a James Bond spy. I guess we should say this. Right, is, uh, this right, is right, right, right. 
Right. Corporate spy versus political spy, though there is a big crossover between the two. And as a matter of fact, one of the events I did this summer was at a uh, book festival. I think it's the largest book festival in New England. It's called Bookstock in Vermont. And the headliners were me and Valerie Plame, who was the CIA agent that was outed by the Bush administration in 2003. And so she was talking about political spying. I was talking about corporate spying. And we were talking about the the very dangerous intersection between the two. Uh, recently, we had some individuals that were um, Chinese nationals that were working for American technology firms, and they were attempting to steal um, that firm's secrets and give them to the Chinese government. Oh. Um, so you can imagine how dangerous that would be if we had nationals working at a defense sure. firm, right? And right. So it, you know that that kind of that kind of corporate spying and political spying, it's a very very dangerous mix. Mm. All right. So, but going back a little bit into your story though, you're sitting at the desk, you're saying you're going to have to start using your voices and change them all the time and just use any kind of, what is it called? Manipulative tactics in order to get any kind of information you can. I mean, what's going on in your mind right then? You know, your first day walking in there, it's just like, whoa, shit, am I in over my head? Am I ready to go? Are you confident? Well, I mean, what's up? Uh, No, I wasn't confident. I was in over my head, uh, but I was broke. So mm-hmm. I needed a job. And, uh, you know, some of the initial information we were getting, it, it it didn't seem too bad to me because we were, you know, back in the day, you know, remember, this is the 90s and into the 2000s. So, you know, LinkedIn wasn't a thing. Yeah. And so corporations didn't know who was working at their competitors. And so the first thing we were doing is we were trying to build the organizational chart of the firm, you know, who worked in what group, who they reported to, who that person reported to, you know, what their salaries were, you know, what they did, um, who was good, who the rock stars were. And so, I knew that whoever, whenever we put these lists together, these people were going to be getting calls for jobs from their competitors. And so they were going to be getting offered better jobs. And that was kind of how in the beginning I rationalized it was, well, you know, I'm just helping people get better jobs. They're going to get, you know, stolen from one firm, go to another firm, get paid more money. Mm. Um, And that's how I, I justified it in the beginning. But as time went on, uh, the amount of espionage we were being asked to obtain kind of we went deeper and deeper into the kind of the dark underbelly of corporate America. Ooh. Well, how did you feel about that? You know, did you have any like moral values or ethics and saying, hey, I'm going to be kind of in somewhat stealing information and giving it to others? Or was it just kind of like, hey, I'm broke. I'm just, I don't care. Well, in the beginning, you know, that was how I rationalized it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was kind of going like, you know, we were calling, for example, some of the companies we were calling were finance companies, Wall Street companies. So we were calling Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo, you know, and I'm like, well, boo hoo for Goldman Sachs. Like, you know, you can make a pretty good argument that Goldman Sachs and Wall Street, you know, caused the 2008 financial crash. Right. Um, And Wells Fargo recently, they had a thing where they were creating fake accounts, 30 accounts in in, in different people's names and ruining their credit. And, you know, so I'm like, well, you know, what? I'm I'm not going to feel too uh, too bad for these Wall Street firms. Yeah. And so that was kind of how I justified it. But in the book, I do reckon with the moral issues because I did, you know, I'm not proud of the job. Um, it is a hell of a crazy fun story. But um, in the book, I do reckon with that. Yeah. I mean, you know, depending on your demographic, or not your demographics, but the environment you grow up in and stuff like that, you know, you don't really know how you're raised, like, you know, because I've always thought about, you know, how would you handle situations like that? Do you know, would you steal if you needed to feed your family or, mm. you know, would, would you steal just because you want to? And there's just like, I forgot what you call it, what some people have, but they just like, you know, they just, and I don't want to say it's stealing, but it almost is in a sense, I guess. But I just wonder how people kind of reconcile that with their head, just that, hey, you know, I'm doing this for this justification reason right here, or is this just something I just get a high off doing? Right. But I mean, yeah, yeah that. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's a, it's a it's a great question and and it was something that I always struggled with um and for the longest time we were getting $8 an hour which of course seems pretty hysterical right. now that here we are doing this corporate spying now I, I granted this was some time ago but but even when we started to make more we were $9 an hour $11 an hour 12, you know for a long time we really weren't doing this job to get rich sure. we were just doing it it was a survival job because we were going to be famous actors. And I was working a lot as an actor. I, you know, did basically lead roles 
in every major show in the 90s and early 2000s, ER, Star Trek, Melrose Place, NYPD Blue, Chicago Hope. You know, I did all of these shows and I just say it was just a moment, a matter of time before I didn't need the ruse job anymore. I was going to quit the ruse job. And at a certain point, um, I booked a number of pilots uh, and those pilots didn't get picked up to go to a TV series. And then all of a sudden I was kind of, you know, my career just kind of waned all of a sudden. And that was the moment where I kind of crossed over to the dark side and I went very heavy into the spying and eventually went from making $8 an hour to making $2 million a year wow. um, doing corporate spying. So, you know, you you go in there not really knowing anything about being a corporate spy and the tactics and like how to do it. and But, you know, you you got your acting background. That seems right. like that's kind of something you could fall onto. But right. something that you went right to as far as a voice in order to start calling these companies up and getting information? Or was it something that you would kind of, when you were not working, like research on your own, it's like, maybe if I use this type of voice, or maybe if I use, act like I'm this type of person, I would get better right. stuff. I mean, was yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the beginning, I was terrible at the job. Um, the the There were two women that trained me. And in the beginning, the woman, you know, so it was a, a, a firm owned by a woman, which was very unusual then, uh, especially yeah. with Wall Street companies. And she only hired women because she felt that women made better spies. Mm. And in the beginning, the women were far more successful at the job because they would pretend to be assistants. They would pretend to be receptionists. Back in the day, most assistants and receptionists were female. And so they would call up and they would basically say, you know, I'm calling and my boss is yelling at me and he's horrible. And, and sometimes they would even start crying on the phone and they would say, well, I need this or I need that. And, and I would expect the assistant on the other end of the line to go, I can't give you that. But yeah. instead, they would feel sorry for you know, you know, the, the woman, you know, the spy and they go, Oh my gosh, don't cry. It's yeah. going to be okay. Uh, my boss is terrible too. What <laughs> do you need? How can I help you? Right. And of course, being a guy, you know, we didn't really have the option then again, because most of the recession receptionists and assistants weren't men, uh, very few were. So I'm like, well, what the heck am I going to say? And it took me a long time. And it was only when I realized, I started to realize that, uh, some of the executives that you could get after hours when the assistants went home, they would pick up their own phones after five o'clock. And so we would call after five o'clock and we would pretend to be an executive in a different location, in a different uh -huh. office. And we would kind of go bro to bro. And it was shocking how easy the executives were to get information out of. And of, and of course, because a lot of times these get, were very senior executives, they had access to treasure troves of intelligence. You know, not only did they know the organization, but they knew the future plans, they knew the strategies, they knew the products. And so they would give all of this information because they thought you were an executive with the company. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty incredible. And that was a big breakthrough for me. Mm. So what was your first call? Do you remember who your first call was and how it went? Is that always the, fir the, fir the first call? The, the person on the other end of the phone laughed at me, hung up, said, <laughs> I, I, I don't believe any of this. I don't buy any of this. You're 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 full of it and yeah. hung up the phone, you know, yeah. and and that was the big thing in terms of being a spy doing this job is you had to be really resilient. Because there were plenty of times that people said, no, I don't believe you. I'm not giving you this information. You know, who are you? Why do you need it? Prove, prove that you are who you say you are. Right. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we weren't able to do that because, you know, I didn't have a, a real email address for the company. I didn't have a real phone, you know, a real office. Of so we had to, um, you know, find ways around that. And eventually, as we got better and better, we were able to, um, you know, basically learn, you know, um, we would do a lot of research before we would call companies. We yeah. would understand how the firm was structured, what was going on in the company. Was their stock price up? Was it down? Did the CEO uh, get arrested for drunk driving? Mm -hmm. Did the football team in the town win the day before? Whatever we could research to learn that we could use, that we would attempt to make friends. You know, I always said when I made a phone call with you, you know, I would try to make you my best friend. Yeah. And if you didn't want to be my best friend, then I would make it so that you did not want me as your enemy, because now you think I'm some big executive. Now you're maybe a little nervous about getting on my bad side. Um, maybe I know someone, you know, that that they work under and it's going to you know, impact them negatively. And so we would utilize those things, that kind of, you know, corporate culture 
the idea that in corporate America, you want to be a good teammate. You don't want to rock the boat. You want to, you know, you know, help out. And sure. we would use use that to get people to tell us stuff. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so when you were sitting in the office, I mean, how does it work, though? You know, they say, hey, we're going to like today. We're going to go after Goldman Sachs, like you said earlier. And then yeah. and we want you to get. You know, as much as you can, the organizational structures, like their salaries, job titles, everything you were saying, who's a rock star, who's not. And then you would get the information. And then what do you do with it? Then do you sell it off to other companies? Uh-oh. Did you freeze? Somebody froze. Whoever our client was. Um, and, um, you know, every every project was different. Every project was custom, what clients wanted. But, you know, generally what would happen is a firm that was, you know, in maybe seventh in their market or fifth in their market or 25th in their market would hire us to find out information about the number one, number two, number three, number four firms, everything yeah. about those firms. And I can tell you, you, you go, well, you know, how much of a difference could that make? You know, and I'll, I'll give you one very quick example. So in 2005, there was an eight-person trading team at Morgan Stanley. That trading team made Morgan Stanley $1 billion that year. Nice. I was tasked with finding out the members of that eight-person team. Now, you might think to yourself, well, how hard could that be? Well, I'm here to tell you that most firms oftentimes would not even list their top people, their traders, in the corporate directory because they didn't want them poached. They didn't want them yeah. Stolen away, right? Of course. Um, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, legendary CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, didn't allow the Apple designers to be listed in the corporate directory. Imagine if you had poached one of the early lead designers for the iPad. Imagine if you had stolen that person away in those secrets. How many billions of dollars would that have been worth? Makes sense. And so I find out, of course, the name of this eight-person team. Um, my client poaches. Uh, two of those individuals. And so how much money was that worth to my client? Some portion of a billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. So, all right. So going back a little bit though, when you know you talked about being broke and starting this job, and then when you start to get really good at your uh, the corporate spine and you start to make your first million or whatever, what was it like then just knowing that, whoa, I'm good at this. I'm going to keep riding this pony till it, bucks me off or is this was it a whole different mindset to you like hey i'm making millions of dollars now or even close to a billion if that's what yeah well i no, that's now. exactly right is is you know i'm like you know what i'm i'm gonna uh one of the reviews said uh shank the man and rake in the bucks hmm. and that's basically what i was i said you know what i'm you know you know i i just didn't i didn't feel i fit i just felt like you know Getting this information out of these major corporations, uh, many of which had done terrible things to consumers, blah, blah, blah. Again, that's my rationalization. I'm not saying it was right, yeah. but that's what that that's what that's what was my motivation. And um, yeah, so uh it was crazy. It was crazy how much demand there was for my work. Um, clients were finding me I, word of mouth. I didn't even know how they were begging me to work for them. They were throwing money at me once I turned down a client. And they said, uh, suppose I paid you in advance. I said, I said, what? Hmm. They said, uh, yeah, I'll pay you in advance. And I, I said, really? And they said, yes, I'll have I'll Federal Express a check to you tonight. You'll have a check in full for the entire project tomorrow morning. Wow. That's that's how bad they wanted to work. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and just being solid after like that, knowing that you're that good, too, has got to be just I don't want to say overwhelming, but just make you feel good inside that knowing that, hey, you know, I came from you know, being broke, living with two guys in Hell's Kitchen, then all of a sudden, you know, I made it now. People want me. They're throwing money at me. They're advancing stuff at me. And that, yeah, you know, and, now and I feel and like I, I'm worth something. Yeah, and, and and it was at the same time where I, my acting career had really dried up where nobody wanted me. <laughs> and so I think that there, it's not coincidental that I went, I took a really deep dive into corporate espionage because there was a certain ego gratification because here I was now, I wasn't working as an actor. I had kind of been close to making it, you know, in the book, you know, I have scenes with George Clooney and Paul Newman and Al Pacino, uh, James Gandolfini, all of these legends of film and television that I was working with, you know, I was acting with, you know, so I was very close. And then when it didn't happen, I think there was a part of me that 
was harboring a little resentment and was like, you know what? I'm going to get my piece of the pie. I'm not going to get it in acting, unfortunately, but I'm going to get I'm going to take my revenge on corporate America. Looking at it now and talking about acting and everything, how do you think your life would have changed if you would made it into acting and went really big and not into corporate spying? Do you think you would have regretted it or do you think that? You would uh, it had been more value to yourself, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I don't. What do you well, think? Look, I mean, I, look, I think if I were a an actor that was working all of the time, that would be a wonderful, exciting life. Yeah. But anybody that knows anything about any art form, um, you know, whether it's you know acting, whether it's writing, whether it's podcasting, sure. anybody knows it's pretty difficult to make money in art, right? Oh, great. Right. And even if you make art, like I made a living as an actor for 10 years, I have a, I have a pension from the Screen Actors Guild, right? Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of like, I always describe myself, you think of Major League Baseball and, you know, there are 25 guys on the team. I was like number 24 guy on the team. Like, you know what I mean? I was like the utility guy. You didn't really see him play that much, but every once in a while he played shortstop or he came up to pinch hit or pinch run. Like that's guy, I was in the majors, but- you, you didn't really, you know, I wasn't a household name. You didn't even know sometimes I was on the team. Um, but it's it's difficult. And so, you know, and also, you know, acting the life of an, of an actor is hard because every time you, a job ends, you're unemployed. Exactly. You're yeah. unemployed. And, you know, it takes a toll on you psychologically because you're always got to hustle to get another job. Now, there are special actors, rare actors that they're always going from job to job to job. But even someone like Al Pacino had periods where nobody wanted to hire him, believe it or not. You know, believe it or not. People thought Al Pacino was done, believe it or not. You know, um, so, you know, even the best of, of, of artists struggle. And um, and so it, it makes it a very difficult career and a different a difficult life. Yeah. You know, I've, heard, I've read that before. Or heard it on a podcast, not read it, but you know somebody was talking about how you know once you finish up a, a set or a movie, a TV show, whatever you're doing, you're you're unemployed again, and then, and that never occurred to me that what that's like again going back over and getting trying to audition for new roles and what's that like the toll it takes on the mind and body, just like oh man, you know, and, and not being a Al Pacino and getting whatever role you want to just as long as you walk into the door, you know, and just that yeah, wow, you know, you're always yeah. looking for work every so few months or whatever it is, yeah, and you have people that. You know, they they were regulars on TV series that people know they did a TV series. It ran for seven years. It was a hit. Then they never get another job again, believe it or not. Then they never work again. And, you know, so it's a very tough business. Certainly, if you want to, you know, you know, have a pay a mortgage, certainly if you want to raise children and send them to college. And that was part of it, too. You know, we bought a house. We we had a started a family. I got married. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm never going to be able to buy a house or or pay for my kids college depending on acting sure. and then like i said that all this money was pouring in from corporate spying and i was like i'm taking it you know um yeah i mean when you're making that much money and you know knowing that you know your social necessities and family necessities are being paid for then plus you have a little bit left over to if you want to go have some you know robert whatever stuff that the buy for yeah. He says, yeah your living life is good i would think yeah. and, and but speaking of you know art form though Knowing that what you were doing, like changing your voice and going in is like changing your mindset to be a certain executive or whatever it was to gain mm-hmm. information. That's almost a typical or a type of art form, I would say, right there. Right. Yeah. I mean, for sure. You know, I, I mean, I had I had I had different accents that I would use my the one that really worked incredibly. Every all the spies, there were about four or five of us. We each had an accent that was kind of our go to accent. Sure. You know, one woman, it was Irish. Um, but for me, you know. This is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the European Union regulators here and we need some help from the states, right? Nice. And right, so you you know the the person on the other end of the phone, they're in the Chicago office, LA office, Charlotte office, New York office and they're like, "Oh my god, we got Gerhard calling from our <laughs> office in Germany, you know, hey, hey buddy, how's it going? What do you need? How can I help you?" Yeah. Right. Because corporations, you think about corporations today, they have offices all over the world. Right. Tokyo, London, Dublin, Frankfurt, Berlin, Paris, you know, Buenos Aires, you know, everywhere. And so, you know, you could be from one office and you could call and people were like, oh, wow, he's with us. 
He's in trouble. He has a crisis. He's, he has some emergency. How can we help Gerhardt? You know, and it was amazing to me. Sometimes the crazier the ruse, hence sure. the title of my book, the crazier the ruse, the more believable it became. Do you know how many people told, you know how many times people said nine to Gerhardt? Never. That's awesome. They always, want, they always wanted to help him. <laughs> yeah, you gotta help out Gerhardt, man. Gotta help yeah. him. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess the next question that I have, you know, do how long did you do this for? I forgot if you already said it. Yeah, it was like, uh, you know, I mean, uh, from like, you know, the 90s into the aughts. So, you know, you know, I don't know the exact number of days or years, but, you know, it was, you know, I started it. And then, you know, like I said, for a long time, it was just survival. And then there was like a five year period or so where it was really heavy, you know, full on corporate spot sure. so yeah what well, i guess what i'm wondering is that that doing it in the 90s and i'm assuming you know i, I know nothing about this area that and i assume yeah. that what happened there's corporate spies spy on each other trying to sell patents and stuff like that and right. but you know doing it when you did it and then like doing it in what 2022 almost 2023 yeah yeah you know, how much difference is there in the game right now is, i mean is it almost impossible to do with all the technology or is it a little bit easier with technology or what well, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, it's it's easier. And corporate spying is alive and well. I mean, one of the things about writing the book that shocked me was so I write this book, I out myself as a corporate spy. I cannot tell you how many corporations emailed me after reading the book saying, We want to hire you to spy for us. <laughs> and I said, I said, I said, you, you do realize I've outed myself. Like I put a target on my back. I cannot go and spy now. Yeah. You know, uh, the first the first person that the FBI is or you know, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, whatever, you know, the US Marshals, the first person they're gonna look at is me now because you know, I'm sort of a, you know, somewhat of a public figure now in terms of corporate spying. Um, but corporate spying is alive and well. Uh, corporations are desperate to find out information on their rivals. Um, and even though uh, a lot of the spying is done with technology, the ruse phone call or the social engineering phone call, uh, it is still a vital part of corporate spying. Because if you get someone on the phone, Right. If you get someone on the phone, you're using obviously, you know, you're not calling from your own phone number. You're using different ways that, you know, we don't really have to get into now, but ways to mask your number, have your number show up as a different number, uh, as a different name. You can have your number show up as a number within the corporation. It's called call spoofing. So you do all of these things. So your phone looks like it's it's legit. And then an executive will pick up the phone and he could be driving home. He, and he, you could get him and go, oh, yeah, I'm in the car for an hour. I'm driving home. What do you need, buddy? And so in a weird sort of way, it's untraceable, right? Or it's very yeah. difficult to trace. Um, and so it's a really effective way, human to human. It still is extremely viable in 2022, that kind of spying. Mm. And when you were writing the book, you know, and you said you added yourself. Did that make you feel – I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but like, you know, almost very vulnerable, I guess at the time, like, Hey, saying, Hey, I'm putting it all out here on the table. Yeah. I, yeah. Like you said, I won't have a target on my back. Is this going to be worrisome for me and my family? Is this something that I do? I really want to do this right now or what? I mean, what were your thoughts behind that? Well, I knew the statute of limitations had expired. So I, I, you know, I was pretty confident that legally uh, the authorities weren't going to come after me, which in the book, they do come after me. Um, and I don't want to spoil that for any potential readers out there, but I had every agency in the world, uh, well, in America, uh, hunting for me, um, and some that were international as well. Um, and I'm very fortunate and lucky that I escaped by the skin of my teeth, um, and I and I uh, did not get caught, but it was really very, very close and dangerous. Um, but yeah, I was a little bit nervous. I think I was more nervous about people that knew me, you know, what were they going to think about me? Because here I am spending my days, you know, lying and deceiving people. And I like to think that I'm a half decent person, maybe slightly better than half decent. Mm -hmm. um, but that was something that I had always done is I drew a line that the ruse was going to be what I did in my day job, but I wasn't going to take the rusing into my personal life. Um, and you know, that was just a, a line that I drew. I also drew a line. I was never going to use any of the information that I obtained 
to um, do any trading. So basically insider yeah. trading, I was never going to do that um, because I also, I felt like that was like in a, that was like in an even deeper level of threat uh, to getting caught and going to jail. I mean, even remember Martha Stewart went to jail for insiders trading, oh, you. you know? So I'm like, I was never going to do that. So those were just some things that I, I did to protect myself, but I did worry about what people, especially people that knew me, but of course didn't know what I was doing, yeah. you know, what they were, what they were going to think about me, you know? Um, you know, that, that was something that I, I, I worried about, but um you know, when you write a book of nonfiction, um, you know, you got to tell the truth. And so, you know, the book is all true. Um, you know, I, I say it's a it's an honest book about lying. <laughs> I like that. And and, and go, talking about, you know, with other people, you know, when you were going to social gatherings, you know, little mimosas, brunch, whatever, you know, mm. you're meeting new people and you know they're all like, hey, what do you do? What do you do? Like, what, did you would you ever say, hey, well, I'm a corporate spy? I mean, I probably no. Not. Yeah, never. I, I I would say, uh, uh, you know, maybe if I had a couple drinks, I'd say I'm in. I I do corporate intelligence, mm. and they'd say, well, what does that mean? And I'd say, well, if I told you, I'd have to take you out back and shoot you, <laughs> and they, and everybody would laugh, and then that would be the end of it, you know. Uh, then probably I know, like, oh shit, is he real? <laughs> like, oh no. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but no, I no, I would never ever have said I was a corporate spy. I never talked about what I did, said what I did. No. Yeah. Did uh. Did I, the, the people you work for, did they tell you that, like, if the, I guess, was there a policy or practice or I don't know what the word I'm looking for again is, but, you know, if you get caught, why doing this? Was there something like, hey, we don't, we're not going to say we know who you are. We're not going to acknowledge yeah, you. Like, yeah. You're, You're out. Yeah. You're great out. question. Great question. So, so, you know, here I am working for the largest corporations in the world. And I'm here to tell you, listeners, every corporation in America hires spies. Are they going to tell you that they hire spies? Of course they're not. So what they do is they would hire me through an intermediary, right? They would hire me through a, 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 a like not they would never hire me. The checks usually uh, almost never came directly from the corporation. The checks came from this other corporation that they had hired. Sure. And so it was basically giving them plausible deniability that if, God forbid, it was found out that I was doing this buying on behalf of XYZ major publicly traded company, the CEO could go, oh my God, well, we had no idea what Robert was doing. But I'm here to tell you that I presented my extracted data directly to individuals who are the CEOs of some of the largest firms in the world. I literally handed it to them myself. What was that like? I mean, it was intense, you know, because you're in the fanciest offices uh, in the world and, you know, glass towers and, and you know, uh, assistants offering you whatever tea or coffee drink or or or, or sparkling water you want. Um, and, you know, you're there to give them this data, which they're desperate to have, which they paid a tremendous amount of money to have. And you're sitting with people that are on CNBC being interviewed. Yeah. You know, and and they're on CNBC talking about the importance of corporate culture and the importance of being forthright with their customers and blah, 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 blah. And here I am handing them the stolen information that they they've asked me to get. Did you ever use like a different alias when handing them the information or anything? No, just, no. Were you just kind of like, hey, this is it right here. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I then I was me, you know, then I was me. Hmm. Hmm. That's got to be a weird feeling knowing that, you know, you have a lot of power in your hands and then you're going to meet these elite CEOs that are also arguably most powerful people that run the countries or whatever you want to say, if mm -hmm. that type of stuff. But, you know, and just knowing what you've been through, your whole story, like knowing that I was trying to be an actor, then I was broke, moved to New York. Now I'm going up and, you know, partying <laughs> with the elite, so to speak, yeah. and that, you know, never, and you know, it, it's almost like it's such a cool story that. You know, I'm I, my I'm having trouble getting my head that it does fit around it because it's like so badass. Like you know, when you're a kid, like talking about wanting to be growing up to be a James Bond or just a spy in general, then you're actually like living it, right? And then yeah, and you never like did you ever see yourself like you never saw yourself be handing critical or I don't no. know, critical information, but you know, I guess to elite people like that. No, right? no, no. I was I look. You know, the first couple of times I went into these buildings, you know, in New York and, you know, 
basically, you know, you've got to be screened by security and you yeah. have to get a badge and then you got to go up to the top floor. And then when the top floor opens, there's someone there to greet you. And then they take you into a fancy waiting room and you know, sit in the fancy waiting room. Then they bring you into the fancy executive's office. And, you know, you're and all of a sudden you're sitting with this person that is making, you know, tens of millions of yeah. dollars a year, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars a year with stock options. Yeah. Uh, and you're there to give them information on their biggest rivals because they're tr- trying in the very cutthroat worlds of technology and Wall Street and pharmaceuticals and, you know, and industrial you know, industrial firms. You know, all of these corporations are constantly trying to get a competitive advantage. And that's where they hire. That's why they hire spies. Do you miss it at all? Being a spy? No, really? No, no. And, and indeed, you know, um, there's this wonderful man, Frank Abagnale. He wrote hey. the book. Yeah. One of my favorite movies. Yeah. 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 He wrote he wrote Catch Me If You Can, right? The book. And then of course made into the great movie with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. And um for I don't know, I've not met Frank, uh Mr. I call him Mr. A, but I've spoken to him on the phone a couple of times. And he read the book and he flipped over Ruse. And he awesome. um gave me the blurb that's on the cover of the book, and he has recommended me. Um, to his speaking agency because he, you know, does all these speaking events, and now they represent me. And um, I now go out and I speak to corporations and individuals about how not to be rused, right? How not to be, you know, uh, how to prevent corporate spying. And so, you know, I feel good about that. That I'm now available as a resource um, to, you know, help firms because they spend so much money. You know, they spend, I mean, you know, trillions of dollars. The cybersecurity industry is a trillion dollar industry. Um, and they spend all this money um, protecting the computers, the servers, the firewall, the encryption, the blah, 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 blah. And yet they spend very little money training employees uh, on the type of techniques that you know I was using and spies use to trick people to say things and tell them things that they shouldn't use, including getting people to give them passwords, you know, getting people to go onto the servers for them, tell them how the servers are set up, explain to them the architecture, all of these things that spies can use then to hack into systems and and cause cause issues and in some cases even uh, ask for ransomware. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people probably won't like me saying this, but when you know getting a uh, a good review, like you said, from Fra- Frank Abagnale, like I would personally think that's kind of pretty badass just because of his mm. story and his background. And, you know, and I know he, you know, broke the law and, you know, he wrote, he did counterfeit checks and all that stuff. But just right. I remember watching that movie the very first time when I was little and just thought how cool that was to be a different person and, you know, be a pilot, be a doctor, right. Be a lawyer, right. And, right. You know, actually right. passing, like, I think he actually said he took the bar. I don't know how much of that movie is true, but, you know, but just doing that kind of stuff and, you know, not really manipulating people, but putting yourself in those type of positions is wow. Yeah. So yeah, having, yeah. Out, that's so badass to me, you know, just having, I know, no, it was, it was, it blew me away. It blew me away. Like when you told me, you know, I, when the book was finished, you know, one of the things that your publisher does is they, look for people to give you advanced blurbs. And of course, you're looking for someone that's written a similar book, like a similar, you know, con deception book. And of course, Frank Abagnale is like the Holy Grail, but I never imagined that he would read the book, let alone give me this, you know, beautiful blurb on the cover. And because Frank Abagnale gave me this beautiful blurb on the cover, Hollywood's ears, of course, pricked up and they were like, well, wait a second, what's this book that Frank Abagnale likes? And because of that, uh, Ruse is in development for a TV series. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. It's like, mm-hmm. It seems like it's starting to come a little bit back full circle that, oh, hey, like, are you going to do any parts in into no. the series? No, no, no. Just, are you just going to be no. kind of like, hey, kind of giving recommendations? and? Well, the- I mean, it was funny that, there, you know, there is a big production company behind Ruse. And then they have this uh, role, like it's called the showrunner. And the showrunner is basically the CEO of the TV series. And this is someone who can write, they can direct, they can produce, like they understand how to do all of the, the things to make a TV series happen. It's a you know huge, you know, all the you think about all the moving parts, the the sets, the costumes, the sound, the music, the actors, the the writing. It's you know. So um, the showrunner at one point said to me, because obviously I'm too old to play myself as a young man, 
But my father's a big part of the book, and indeed, he's kind of the heart of the book. And uh, and at one point, there was a suggestion: Well, what about you playing your father in the in the show? And that really was touching. And I was I was like, wow, you know that that would be really cool and really wonderful. But I, I still think that I'd rather see some really great, well known actor in the part rather than me. Um, but if they can't find anybody, uh, I'll be the backup. <laughs> Who do you do you have a top three that you would want to see play you? Well, you know, I don't know like twenty five year old actors as well. Um, you know, I know, uh, you know, I mean, in my in my fantasy world, uh, I know he would never do it because he's just too darn famous. But you know, having Leonardo DiCaprio play my father, that would be pretty cool. You know, hey, yeah. uh, that would be pretty cool. So that's that's my fantasy and. Like I said, I got my fantasy person to blurb the book, Frank Abagnale. Maybe I'll get my fantasy actor to play my father in the TV show. Who knows? Yeah. Well, going with the TV show, though, is there – do you have a date set when it's going to be on air or is it still a production? No, we, we, you know, we're, we, we're, we're pretty far along the road, but, you know uh, – I, I don't know how long those things take, like from the yeah. from the yeah, I don't know, like from the day, you know, you know, the studio goes, OK, I don't know how long it is to get, you know, I don't know if that's six months. I don't know if that's 18 months. You know, I would say somewhere in between there, I would say somewhere between six to 18 months. Yeah. And, and do, you, or do you think they're going to make it like an actual TV series, like 10 episodes to draw it out as much as they can or. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, because we've already talked about what the first season would be, but we also have ideas for what a second and what a third season would look like. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So people like to ask me, you know, what is, you know, talk about acting and stuff that, you know, I love movies, like for whatever reason, I've liked them ever since I was a kid, but you know, like, did you like TV series better or movies? And, you know, I almost like TV series better just now, just because, you know, certain ones now that are like Sopranos, Game of Thrones, all those that if you do hour long episodes, you know, you can, make the story go a little bit longer and get a little bit more out of it where instead of a movie, you only have what averagely an hour and a half, two hours to condense yeah. thing. And, uh, you know, let's get all as much as we can told right then instead of just, Hey, yeah. you know, let's develop the story a little bit. Yeah. I mean, think about it. If you fall in love with the character, do you want to spend an hour and a half with the character? Or do you want to spend 50 hours with the character, right? You, you want to spend as much time as possible with, you know, Tony Soprano, right? Yes. Um, uh, you know, or, or, you know, uh, you know, Rob Stark or Jon Snow or, you know, whatever characters, right? And it's the same thing, uh, I think, you know, with Ruse, uh, because there was someone in the beginning that wanted to make a movie out of it. And, um, you know, and I don't know, maybe maybe it still will be a movie if the TV series. I don't know. But but I, I felt like it 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 would it would be it would work better as a TV series. That That's what I think. No, I agree. Based on, you know, as much detail as, you know, we could go down to with just, you know, the practices, of course, corporate spying and the characters and the build up and the plot and everything that goes into it. Yeah, I would love to see that, the, you know, based on this conversation a TV series just because like, yeah. Said, yeah, like, okay. Yeah. Let's see what's going on with Robert now. Okay. Yeah. Just don't, end yeah. it. just like some end it in some ridiculous way or whatever it is. Like, Oh, he got right. a big deal. Like, oh man. Right. What, what happened there? You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it'll be fun. I think it'd be really fun. Yeah, it should be man. And, and, and just going back though, a little bit, I wanted to touch on this a little bit earlier, but uh, I got sidetracked with the Frank Abagnale thing. And I'm one of these guys that my full-time job is it. And that just how, huh. it, yeah. Well, how important is like the cybersecurity is. And, yeah. you know, and I'm really small time, like in a small town where I work at IT, but, you know, for these major corporations and major, uh, you know, I used to work in higher education and uh, IT. So it was just like how much serious it's actually taken. And just because of like ransomware and, and everything. Yeah. And did you say you were teaching like ways not to prevent? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and, yeah. and what's interesting too, is when we were, when I was doing my spying and rusing, we were calling small companies just as often as we were calling large companies. Yeah. We were calling small private companies because in a lot of ways, small private companies, you know, they have less of a public profile because they're small and because they're private. Mm -hmm. And so competitors to small private companies, it was very hard to get information on a small private firm, you know, sure. and sometimes it was one of their rivals and a similarly sized private company that wanted to know what their competitor was doing. And sometimes it was a huge company that was trying to maybe either acquire the smaller company or bury the smaller company. Yeah. And so they wanted to know about pricing and they wanted to know about strategies and all of those different things. So I, I tell people when I speak that, you know, small companies, their cybersecurity issues are just as great. 
Um, and just as important, maybe even more important. And here's an example. I recently had a hospital um, that, um, you know, they're a, a basically a hospital with, you know, five facilities, right? Sure. Five healthcare facilities. And they basically were hacked and their systems were shut down. You know, they were held ransom. Um, and basically they couldn't book an appointment. They couldn't do anything for 10 days. Now think about that. Right. If you're uh, you, like, so, so basically your business is stopped for 10 days. How much money does that cost your firm? Exactly. For 10 days in a hospital, it's a lot. It's a lot. And the reputation, right? It's, a, it's just embarrassing, right? And, and, and people are like, well, I'm not going to go to that healthcare provider again. I'm not going to go get, you know, my physical therapy there, or I'm not going to go get a surgery there. I mean, what the hell, you know? So it really is important for large firms, medium-sized firms, and small firms to make sure that they're training their employees. And of course, this healthcare provider I'm talking about, the the hacker got in using rusing, using mm -hmm. the phone to get information about the technology, and then they use that to hack into the system. Yeah. It, it, so, you know, it was like a two-part and a lot of times the social engineering. Uh oh. Needs certain information that they can only get by talking to people that are inside the company. But once they have that information, then they can use that to hack in. Of course. So, in your opinion, you know, with, with firewalls and security or antivirus stuff and all this stuff, does it block out anything you don't want inside your network or whatever? Is that the weakest link? Is this to get, finally get somebody on the phone and you could catch them when they're having a bad day or something and let them spill the beans? And they, and like yeah. you said, they start to tell you, oh, this is how it works. Oh, this is who is in charge of this. Oh, this is how we have it set up, right? That's right. Yeah. The human being is always the weakest link in cybersecurity. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt yeah. it because I've, I've, you know, just, and randomly having conversations with people and then, and I don't know, just like I said, catching them on certain days or, you know, it's one of those things where just, oh, fuck this job, you know, and just so upset about everything. And they're just like, you know, and they start talking, telling you stuff. It's like, well, I don't know if you should be telling me this, bro. That's you know? right. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, and think about it. Um, new employees, very vulnerable to spies. Yeah. Junior employees, very vulnerable to spies, right? Um you know, and then as we discussed earlier, big executives in some situations, not often with a small firm, but with a big firm, I could call, you know, as the head of compliance in Europe, and I could get the head of IT on the phone in the States, but he is so comfortable that I'm the head of compliance in Europe. So when I start asking him questions, and I'm like, look, I'm in compliance, so I don't really know IT. You know, and I got my German accent going on. He's like, oh, well, don't worry about it. You know, Manfred, you know, Hans, whatever, whatever the real name is, because now I'm impersonating a real person. So right. he he probably knows Hans, the head of compliance in Europe. He knows the name, but he's most likely never spoken to him, maybe once. But, you know, over the phone, he does, you know, so all of a sudden now he believes I am who I say I am. He knows that I won't know technology the way he does. And so he's willing to explain to me, well, Hans, let me explain how our system here works. It might be a little different for you guys over there in Europe, but in the States, blah, 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 da, 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 da. Oh, really? You know, and now he's basically giving me all this information that I can either use if I'm a hacker or I can sell to hackers. Mm. Is that kind of one of the things that most people want to do is sell to hackers rather than just use it? I think most of the big ransomware firms, they have people that are part of their operation. And remember, you're talking about small groups of people, right? Sure. Um, but there's usually somebody there that is like their social engineering person that's making those kind of phone calls. And then they're the people that have the, the more of the technical skills, but they're working together as a team. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It's, a, it's wild to think that you know, I guess there's me being kind of green with all this stuff that you don't really think this can really happen, but it really can't happen. I know, and there's certain surrounding counties where I lived at where, you know, I'm in a very rural area here in Virginia, like I told you earlier, and that you wouldn't think, you know, people would, you know, prey on you, so to speak. And then they do, right. and they find yeah. people who they get into their, they take over the network and won't give it back. And, you know, unless you pay us, I forgot how much x amount of money it is 10,000 50,000 100,000 250,000 exactly. a million 10 million whatever whatever the size they they know 
what you can. They know what's going to hurt, but you're going to be willing to pay. Yeah. Yeah. They I'm, know. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, know if I should. I don't even know if I should. I guess I could say this. I ain't going to say too many specifics, but we've gotten ransomware threats through our work emails and stuff at work where they're saying, hey, you know, unless you pay us 1.7 Bitcoin right now, we're going to release all the video footage we have of you watching porn and how he took over your computer and all this stuff like that. Right. So, yeah, right. it's a, it is a while. Like you talked about the dark underbelly world earlier. Yeah. yeah, just, you know, I've not even seen the surface of it all or scratch the surface. So it's just like, wow, right. how far does this rabbit hole go, you know, and how yeah. deep or can we get in this world? So. Well, you want to know how you you want to know how deep it gets? It gets pretty deep. I don't okay, doubt so, here, so here's an example. It is not happen. It's not come uh, out kind of publicly yet, but it's only a matter of time where we learn an example of a ransomware attack being perpetrated by a rival to a corporation. Think about that. You got it. So oh. in other words, I'm. I'm XYZ big company sure. and I want to I want to get my rival. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shut their system down. I'm going to hire these ransomware people. I'm going to hire these people that are going to attack and they're going to shut that company down. They're going to damage that company and they're going to damage that company, the hospital, the scenario I said earlier. Well, all of a sudden, guess where everybody's coming now? My hospital. Yes. They're coming to me because my systems are working great. Right. And it's only a matter of time before all of a sudden we're going to find out where that firm that authorized it gets caught. And and that's going to be that's going to be a movie, too, where it's going to be like, oh, my God, like you're the big. It wasn't a a, a team in Russia doing it or a team in China doing it. It was your (laughs) biggest rival. You you know what I mean? Yeah. Right here. That's going to be that's going to be crazy Mm. because I know it's already happened. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, right? Is that the, exactly? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Robert, I want to be respectful. Robert, I want to be respectful for his time. I re- appreciate you being here. Um, if, this was awesome. If people want to, but if you want to plug your book or plug, or people want to be, tell people where they can find it and all that good stuff, tell them that. Yeah, please. I mean, you know, I, I, I the easiest thing is just go to my website. It's my name, you know, www.robertkerbeck.com. Um, you can buy Ruse uh, from my website. You can buy my previous book, Malibu Burning, from my website. You can see the trailer for Ruse uh, so you can get an idea of what the TV series might be like. Um, uh, and so it's just fun. It's really fun. Um, and you could also email me directly from the site. So I always tell uh, listeners, you know, uh, you know, reach out. You know, if you have a question about spying, if you're looking to if your listeners are looking for a new career and they want to pivot to a career in corporate spy, I can hook them up. <laughs> might have to take you up on that one right this sounds yeah cool, cool man well thanks for being with this man this was awesome i appreciate you being here this was this was very interesting man this was very uh, well thanks for having me chris well anyway, uh, anything else or are you good or anything else you need to plug no it's great cool. yeah that's great all right well we're out of here folks uh we'll see you later bye